Well, let me add my welcome. My name's Alistair. I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside. I'm grateful you're joining us today. Uh, before we dig into the scriptures, let's pray together. Father, I give you thanks that we can gather together under your word, under your authority, united, Lord, by your spirit, our common faith. So as we open your word, we ask that you apply it to our minds, that we not grow shallow, apply it to our hearts, that we not grow cold, and apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke weave back and forth between the backstories of John the Baptist and Jesus. And as chapter 3 begins, Luke brings his attention back to John the Baptist. And after this, the spotlight will shine exclusively on Jesus. But as we begin chapter 3, we're going to look at the ministry of John the Baptist, which could be summarized in one word, preparation. He has a ministry of preparation. And, and so since the remainder of the gospel is going to zoom in on Jesus, I want to give John his due. And so we're going to dwell in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 for several weeks because John's ministry of preparation can still help us prepare our own hearts for Christ. And I also believe that the church is invited to extend his ministry of preparation. So... Uh, for the next three Sundays, we're, we're going to work our way through this text. Uh, we're going to look at the message of John, and or sorry, the ministry of John, and then the message of John, and then the expectation of John. And then to kick off the Lenten season on Ash Wednesday, we'll have a fourth sermon on the cost of for John. So four sermons, the ministry, message, expectation, and cost in John's ministry. And this week, we begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, when Julia and I moved to Vancouver in 2012, it was moving home for me, but for Julia, who grew up in Florida, which is also known as the calmest state in America, where nothing strange ever happens in the news, it was a brand new place for this Floridian girl. And very quickly, when Julia was getting acclimated to her new environment, she was really caught up in the geography. She would often point to things and be like, oh, what is that? And I would look and I would say something helpful like, that is a tree. But she would want to know the details. Like, is it a butis? Is it a Douglas fir? Is it a red cedar and whatnot? But if I'm honest, I never really paid much attention to these sort of details growing up. All I could do when she would ask questions would point at things and be like, tree, tree, bush, tree, person. Now, it's Julia's appreciation of, of things and places, wanting to know their names and their stories that have actually helped me become a better student of geography, but also a better student of the scriptures. Old Alistair would read our passage today, John, uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I would just breeze past all the details. And so I would read it like this. Date, role, person, person, role, place, person, role, place, person, role, place, person, role, place, role, person, person. The word of God came to John, the son of person, person, place, place, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I would just want to zoom in on what I thought was the main point. 
And what you just heard, the passage actually sounds a lot different if we don't pay attention to the details. You might recall actually back in November, I took us on a tour of the different political leaders mentioned in the first three chapters of Luke, because when Luke says that the word of God came to John, we don't want to miss something. He's saying that the word of God bypassed all of these rulers. Uh, You can go back and listen to that sermon, The Politics of the Kingdom, if you want to explore that point further. But today I want to do something similar. Rather than looking at these people and their roles, I want to pay attention to the places mentioned. I want us to study the geography of this passage. Because in our passage, Luke writes in verse 3, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So today, as we explore the ministry of John, I have two points I want to consider together, the wilderness and preparation. So let's begin with the wilderness. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. What comes to your mind when you think of the wilderness? Now, you might think of Pacific Spirit Park or Stanley Park or Grouse Mountain or Seymour Mountain. You know, if you're like most people in Vancouver, when you think of the wilderness, this is a place to go to escape from the city, to connect with creation, to be replenished, to take a big breath and, you know, get fresh air in your lungs and a sense of tranquility and peace and renewing a sense of vibrancy and being alive. You know, so you might hear wilderness and intuitively you hear the word of God came to John on a hike or the word of God came to John while he was skiing or even the word of God came to John while he was living his best life. Because what would be better than being out in the wilderness? But this isn't the wilderness for John. The wilderness was not a place of leisure or enjoyment. You know, rather than the lush wilderness of the Pacific Northwest, we should imagine a desert. You know, traditionally it's believed uh, that John was north of the Dead Sea. And so as you traveled east of Jerusalem, after you're about 15 kilometers away from the city, uh, all of life kind of gave way and and the geography becomes this uh, barren area devoid of much vegetation except around the Jordan River. And if you traveled an additional 25 kilometers, you would then be in the region where John was preaching. And so John is out in a desert And he's near water, he's near the Jordan, he's near some vegetation, he's got enough locusts and honey to tide him over, as the Gospel of Matthew makes clear. And I've always just found it interesting that there's movements within the church that always call for like a Daniel fast, but so rarely do we call for a John fast. And I'm not sure why we pick and choose there. I just find it curious, But, but I regress. John, he's not so far from civilization that people can't take a full day trip to come and see him and hear his message. Obviously, people are coming out to him. But nevertheless, he is remote. He's removed from civilization. He's in a desert. In his book, Spiritual Landscape, 
James Resegue, who's a New Testament scholar, says, for the original audience of the Gospel of Luke, the desert is an austere, feral, forbidding landscape. It's the habitat of wild, terrifying animals and demonic beings. The desert represents the world at the edges, untamed, uninhabitable, and that threatens the pleasant fertility of inhabited spaces and human existence. This is John's wilderness. And it had other connotations within the imagination and history of the people of God. Yes, the wilderness was a place of disturbing discomfort, but in some cases, it was also the place of disobedience. It was also the place of disobedience. We have to remember that the defining story for the people of Israel was and remains the Exodus. And after God graciously and dramatically and powerfully liberated the Israelites from their Egyptian oppressors, God led them out into the Sinai wilderness. And it didn't take long before the first committee was formed in the Bible, and they were called the Back to Egypt Committee. And they started grumbling against Moses that God had led them out into this wilderness to die and that they would have been better off in Egypt. And this resentment toward God only escalates as time goes on. And as after many warnings, after many second chances, ultimately the disobedience of this generation barred them from entering the promised land. And so an entire generation passed away in the wilderness. So in Israel's story, there is an element of tragedy when you think about a wilderness. The discomfort and the danger of the wilderness, it tests our resolve and it exposes the bleak parts of our humanity, the parts we'd rather gloss over, the parts of ourselves that can see God do something astounding and gracious and beautiful where we can see his goodness in one moment, but shortly after we can doubt and reject him in the very next moment. The wilderness exposes the parts of ourselves that deliberately choose disobedience, that deliberately choose to walk on a different path than the ways of God. So Luke tells us that the word of God bypassed all these powerful political rulers and it came to John here in the wilderness, this dangerous place that exposes the deeper wilderness of the human soul, the barren parts of humanity that rebel against God. But the wilderness is not solely a foreboding place. Now, although it's a challenging place, although it's a place of historic disobedience for the people of Israel, it's also a place of opportunity and possibilities, a place for preparing to enter a new beginning. You see, the wilderness is not solely about disobedience. It was also about preparation. Yes, a, a generation of Israelites fell apart in the wilderness and never reached the promised land, but that's not where the story ends. The next generation grew up in the wilderness and God brought them into the promised land. Before they ever entered the promised land, they first had to cross the Jordan River. They had to leave the old behind to enter into the new. And Luke writes in verses 2 and 3, 
the word of God came to John in the wilderness, and he went up into all the region around the Jordan. So the wilderness plus the Jordan adds up to something here. You know, both were seen as parts of the equation for the new exodus. Around the time of John, expectations for a new exodus ran high. God would deliver his people yet again, an unparalleled event that would even overshadow the first exodus because God would finally establish a new social order through his Messiah. God would finally liberate the world from inequity and injustice and oppression. God would finally establish the promised new covenant and pour his spirit into the hearts of his people so that they would be transformed and actually become the type of people who live in this new social order. You see, the new Exodus promised that the, the barrenness of the world, the wilderness of the world, it would give way to a lush green landscape full of life. And so, out in the wilderness, this is what John is preparing people for, a new Exodus. And at this point of Luke's gospel, we get a glimpse of how John is fulfilling everything that was prophesied about him. For example, if we look back at Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, before his birth, the angel Gabriel said this, John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then John's born and his father, Zechariah, says in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 76 through 77, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And now as an adult, John is stepping into this very calling. He's out in the wilderness. He's in the region of the Jordan. And it's the words of the prophet Isaiah that can help us understand just what he's doing out there. As Luke writes in verse 4 of chapter 3, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so I want to shift gears at this point. We've talked about the wilderness, but now I want to talk about preparation. John's ministry of preparation. In the wilderness, John is preparing the way of the Lord. He's making the path straight. He's getting people ready, a people prepared for the Lord. And they will be prepared through a baptism of repentance. And we'll look at John's message of repentance more closely in next week's sermon. But for now, I want to note that as people come to him, John prophetically challenges their personal and corporate sins. And he's unflinching about it. But then he also paints a picture of the remedy. He doesn't just tell people what they need to leave behind, how they're getting it wrong. He also paints a picture of what a renewed life looks like, a life that's consistent with the kingdom of God, a life that actually prepares the way for the Messiah. And so he's inviting people to leave the old behind and embrace the new reality. And he tells people what they need to turn away from. And he tells them, you got to turn toward the Lord and his ways. And so he, he calls people then to embody 
this decisive shift as he baptizes them in the Jordan for the forgiveness of sins. It's a separation from their past disobedience and embrace of God's new future and living in the ways of the kingdom. And so in the wilderness, John calls people out of disobedience and into preparation. But it's important for us to see that he's not out there merely preparing people for a nice spiritual experience. He's not just trying to inspire people to become better people. He's calling them out of disobedience and into preparation for the new exodus. Look at verses four through six once more. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see, shall see the salvation of God. And so John is preparing people to see the salvation of God. This is what he's preparing them for. And as Isaiah prophesied, the geography is going to shift. The landscape is going to change. Goodbye to valleys and mountains. Instead, there will be level ground. And this metaphorical image is just meant to convey that everyone is going to be able to see the salvation of God. Nothing will inhibit them from seeing it. John is preparing people for this level ground. He's preparing them for a fresh vantage point. John's preparing people to see the salvation of God, to see the new exodus. He's preparing them to see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they will ultimately see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter if someone is high and exalted, rich, and powerful, or whether someone is low and humble, poor and weak, everyone will see the salvation of God in Christ. And it doesn't matter what you bring, a good moral track record or a history of atrocious failures. You know, you cannot climb so high as to get closer to God, and you cannot fall so low as to be beyond his grace, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It is the great equalizer. God meets every single person there and offers us grace, offers us forgiveness, meets us as we are, and we're simply invited to repent and believe in this good news. But why preparation before the main event? You know, why send John to prepare for Jesus? Why not just get to the point? And the answer is really quite simple. The human spirit, the human soul isn't always ready. Yes, sometimes it just clicks and eyes and hearts open and people run to Jesus for the mercy and grace he so freely offers. But usually we need some preparation. Are you prepared to see the salvation of God? And if it's not clear to you yet, if you don't feel like you're standing on level ground or if you don't have the right vantage point, what's the next right step for you? And I want you to know we would be honored and would love to journey alongside you. And if you need support in figuring out that next step, who is Jesus? What is he all about? What does it mean 
to follow him, please reach out. Email me or anyone on our team and we'll get back to you and, and we'll walk alongside you. But as the church, I actually think we are called to be an extension of John's ministry of preparation. When we've seen the salvation of God for ourselves, we can help prepare the way for others to say, see it too. James Engel uh, created what's now known as the Engel scale. And he tried to capture the process of conversion, how someone journeys from no knowledge of God to maturity in Christ. And now it's been modified a few times, but essentially looks like this. People journey from no awareness of God to ongoing growth in Christ. And this involves a step to some awareness of God, to contact with Christians, and then interest in Jesus, and then investigating Jesus, then grasping the truth and implications about Jesus, and accepting the cost of becoming a Christian before a decision to surrender to Jesus. And then from there, a person gains confidence in their decision, experiences change in their life, learns the basics of their faith, learns Christian disciplines, shares their faith with others, and experiences ongoing growth in Christ. Now, of course, it's not always this linear. It's usually a lot messier, nor does this scale talk about the journey of doubt or deconstructing misguided beliefs and reconstructing yourself around Christ and a whole host of other experiences. But the point of the scale isn't to name everything, but to simply remind us that people need, be, need to be prepared along the way, wherever they may be on that journey. We need preparation. We can't assume that we know where someone is in the process. We need to listen and hear their story. But wherever you may be, wherever you are on that journey, what's your next step? What does repentance look like for you? What does it look like for you to change your mind, to leave a perspective behind and to adopt a new perspective? And for those of us who've seen the salvation of God in Christ, I think this offers us an alternative to just assuming that any and every person is ready to hear the gospel. Instead, we can stop and ask, what's the next right step? Where is this person at? Listen to their story. Figure out what parts of the gospel might be best for them to hear. Or with patience, wait until a better time to tell them. Help them figure out their next right step. Have patience in the process because it is a process. And we get to enter into it helping prepare people to see this great salvation. Are you meeting someone where they are with the necessary patience to help them come to see Christ. You know, when I look back on my life at this point and, and my life before encountering Christ, the ways in which I was prepared along the way, I just find remarkable. There was a time in my, my mid-teens that I, I met a girl and I really wanted to go on a date with her. So I asked her on a date and she said, no, uh, you're not a Christian and I'm about to move for a long-term missions trip and I'm going to be serving these people. And, and it blew my mind. Uh, not that she said no to me, that, that made perfect sense, but I had never heard of people traveling around the world to go and serve others. I, it just made me a little more interested in what her perspective in life might be. I just moved from A to B, like a little shift in my life. 
I was at a party in my later teens and an acquaintance and I got into a debate about the meaning of life and frustrated, uh, he said at one point, Alistair, one day, I hope you know Jesus loves you like I know he loves me. And I just found it all very bizarre because the whole night he and I had been partaking of a variety of substances and it just seemed so hypocritical and yet shocking. I just couldn't shake it and I, and I moved a little bit from the next step, you know, B to C. There was a time my band toured uh, in my early 20s with another hardcore band. And they would get together as because they're all Christians and they would pray and then go on stage and scream their guts out. And it just blew my mind. And these same guys would go ghost hunting with me uh, at these haunted spots in different cities. And just their willingness to meet me as I am just softened me a little. And I moved another little bit from D to E. And there was my vocal instructor who never pushed her faith on me over years of knowing her, rarely brought it up. But then in a really trying and challenging time in my life, she said, Alistair, you know I don't talk about my faith much, but I know you're going through a hard time. I really think this book might help you. Would you read it for me? And so I did. And it was actually that book that really helped open my heart and my eyes to who Jesus is. As I was reflecting on my story and how I was prepared and how I ultimately came to surrender to Jesus, I was reminded of my professor and mentor when I was working on my master's. And he told me the story of one of his first jail visits as a young minister. And he was meeting with a man. And, and after one or two meetings, he had the good fortune of helping lead this person to Jesus. And he was feeling pretty good about himself. But the next time he, he met this individual, uh, the person pulled him aside and almost uh, rebuked him and said, hey, I don't want you to think you're anything special. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the message that you told me. You're number 26. There's nothing special about you. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, in that moment, the Lord finally helped me see, hey, this is true. And it was just such a, a humble reminder and such an encouraging reminder that we don't always get to be number 26 in someone's story. That sometimes we're just one little piece, one little step towards them coming to see the salvation of God. I love that story. Now, from my own life, what I've shared with you, I hope you see God amidst this beautiful mess. You know, some witnesses were better than others. Even so, God wove all these different encounters together to bring me to a place, to bring me to a vantage point where I could see his salvation. So I do think the best way we can continue this ministry of preparation is through our, our witness, through our character, through who we are. I recently read an article about the comedian and actor Sarah Silverman. I'm not a huge fan of her work, but I'm a big fan of this story. Uh, Sarah Silverman decided to befriend someone who trolled her on Twitter, a man from San Antonio named Jeremy. And it all started because Jeremy responded to one of her tweets by calling her a vulgar term. But rather than respond with name calling or express her anger or, or uh, ignoring him altogether, Sarah Silverman uh, decided to respond with kindness and to engage him. And during their exchange, Jeremy slowly let down his guard and he told her about his troubled past and how ongoing back issues had fed his anger. And so Silverman reached out to her 12 million Instagram followers, uh, which is like 
11.9 million more than mine and, and asked him to recommend, you know, a doctor who could alleviate Jeremy's back pain. And then she even helped raise money and even gave money for his medical bills because we're talking about America where healthcare is great. And, and this little act of kindness though, inspired Jeremy then to use some of the excess fundraising to give to others who were in need. And in an interview, he said, I was once a giving and nice person, but too many things destroyed that, and I became bitter and hateful. Then Sarah showed me the way. Don't get me wrong, I still got a long way to go, but it's a start. I love that. Character, kindness, it goes a long way. How much more, as followers of Jesus, are we called to this kind of witness? a witness that helps prepare people for the ways of Jesus? Do you have a willingness to befriend your enemies, the belligerent, those who hold different views than you? Are you willing not to return insult for insult or offense for offense, but to show grace and to offer kindness? Are you willing to enter into people's suffering and to do what you can to alleviate it in whatever little ways you can offer? And I want to ask, is it, is it even on your radar? You know, do you even have a desire for people to see the salvation of God? Is a driving passion of your life for people to see that Christ is in fact alive in you, living through you for the sake of others? And if not, can we just acknowledge it? Can we acknowledge that maybe we need to change then? Maybe there's a wilderness growing in our souls that needs to be named. Maybe we need to repent. And again, I don't mean feel guilty or ashamed, but to change our minds, to change our hearts, to say, Jesus, bring me out of this wilderness and into the life you offer. Stir new desires in me that I would start to long for others to see the goodness of your salvation as I begin to see it afresh in my own life. Because we are invited to help prepare the way for others to see the salvation of God. But we must prepare our own hearts before we can be an extension of John's ministry. And we prepare our hearts through ongoing repentance, realigning our lives again and again with the ways of Jesus by the power of his spirit. And as we slowly and surely embody the teachings of Jesus, when we put it into action for the sake of others, we can help them prepare little by little to see the salvation of God, one step at a time.